Welcome to the Illustrator Studio. I am Jesse Kowalski, Curator of Exhibitions at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. The Illustrator Studio is a weekly interview series, a project of the museum's Rockwell Center for American Visual Studies. In this episode of the Illustrator Studio, we welcome Patrick Wilshire. Wilshire is the first guest on this program who is not an artist, though his work behind the scenes has helped boost the visibility and perception of fantasy and science fiction illustration. Through his annual IX Arts Conference, Wilshire and his wife Jeannie gather many of the top illustrators in the country, as well as emerging artists, to exhibit their work, give lectures, lead art demonstrations and webinars, and meet with fellow artists. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So, um, I am planning a, a fantasy exhibit at the Rockwell Museum this summer called Enchanted. And uh, many of uh, the artists who uh, appear at the IX Arts Conference are, are in the show. And when I started planning the uh, exhibit, there were a few key fantasy artists I reached out to to kind of bounce questions off of and uh, uh, get their uh, opinions on certain things, uh, you know, fantasy versus science fiction. and. And things like that, and uh, but you were also one of the one of the people I contacted in the beginning because you are an expert in the field. Uh, so, how did your career get started? Um, well, uh, basically, it started from the collecting perspective. Uh, you know, I had been a fan of of imaginative artwork ever since I was a kid. So, I started playing D and D when I was ten, um, and so I was uh, flushed. Uh, with uh, the fabulous, you know, early TSR illustration. And then I became a, a reader of fantasy and science fiction shortly thereafter and was exposed to all of that. And uh, when I was in my mid-20s, uh, I started collecting uh, original, you know, science fiction and fantasy imaginative work. And as I collected over the span of years and got to know more and more collectors and more and more artists, um, you know, my involvement in the field kind of expanded uh, from just being a collector to kind of coordinating collectors to coordinating artists and collectors to eventually where we are now, uh, where sometimes I swear we coordinate everything. In 2012, you curated an exhibition at the Allentown Art Museum titled At the Edge, Art of the Fantastic, uh, which was a very influential exhibit. Uh, how did that uh, originate? Uh, well, actually, that originated um, a, uh, an artist uh, who was an IX uh, exhibitor named Jeremy Coniglia um, uh, back in, in the, the early, or well, the late aughts, I guess, um, happened to be friends with the then director of the Allentown Art Museum, Brooks Joyner. And uh, Jeremy had mentioned to Brooks that, hey, you know, we, this, this is, you should be doing a show. Um, you know, of this, this kind of subject matter. And Brooks was sort of intrigued. Uh, and so he talked to us and he came to uh, one of the early IXs in Altoona and then said that, uh, yeah, they, they would like to have us curate um, a, a large exhibition for them of uh, imaginative realist work. And so we kind of assembled that um, and over the course of the project, um, you know, our scope expanded and their budget contracted. Uh, so we, we got to deal with that. There were a lot of things that, that we, we had 
talked with other institutions and had agreed on some institutional loans that then ended up getting cut uh, for lack of budget. So it wasn't quite as comprehensive uh, in the end result as we had originally hoped, but we still ended up showing, I think uh, roughly 140 artists um, exhibiting in that show. And it really kind of covered the gamut um, you know, we did not have much 19th century representation because those are the things that got cut, mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when the budget got cut. But it was a pretty solid representation of turn of the century to the present. Uh, a lot of collectors were fabulously willing uh, to lend work to the show. Um, of course, all the artists uh, were willing to lend work to the show. And that was a really interesting experience. And the show at the time, at least when it happened, was the best attended show that the Allentown Museum had ever had. Yes. Yeah, so when you were planning the exhibit, uh, was it science fiction and fantasy or was it mm -hmm. one or the other? Or where, where was it, the show? It was imaginative work. It covered both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you, you often use the phrase imaginative realism uh, over fantasy. Uh, could you define uh, what that is and, and why, why you prefer that phrase? Uh, sure. Well, imaginative realism is we didn't actually invent the term. Um, it had appeared sporadically for, for quite some time back, but uh, no one was actually using it. And we thought that this genre really needed a, a proper term that encompassed the field, but actually put it in some kind of an art historical context. Um, you know, fantasy and science fiction art doesn't tell you anything about where it fits on the kind of the art continuum and not everything is technically fantasy and science fiction art um, or fantasy and science fiction illustration. Imaginative realism is a little broader than that. And so we decided on imaginative realism because, okay, it's specific, um, you know, it's fairly clear. Uh, if you just hear the word imaginative realism, what is it? You know, it's the realistic depiction of the unreal. Okay, that makes sense. It's logical. It slots in as a genre of realist, you know, art, and so we think that just kind of gives it um, a, a better understanding for people, uh, especially since now, you know, a huge quantity of work that's being done in this field today has nothing to do with illustration at all. No, uh, no, I completely agree, and uh, you know, one of the uh early criticisms of uh, doing a, a show on fantasy illustration at the museum was kind of this stigma that it's, uh, you, you know, uh, art for uh, teenagers, you know, pimply teenagers, or it's, you know, uh, babes in bikinis, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, how have you seen the, the stigma change over the years? Well, I think, I mean, the stigma has changed dramatically over the last 15 years. Um, even that short a time span has been a dramatic change. And I really think a lot of it simply boils down to, um, you know, I'm, I just turned 50. Um, you know, I was six years old when Star Wars came out. So I consider myself part of the Star Wars generation. Um, and I think really part of what you're seeing is simply that the tastemakers, uh, the museum curators and the gallerists and you're now getting people running galleries and, and running museums who are in their 40s and 50s, um, you know, who grew up with imaginative subject matter as a 
you know, straightforward, popular, well-known and respected genre in literature, in film and everywhere else. And so, yeah, a dragon is not really any different than a horse. It's just cooler. Yeah, and I think when you put uh, put things in context with uh, artists like uh, uh, Gustave Dore or John Martin mm-hmm. or uh, Turner, uh, you know, I think I think that helps helps further the uh, field quite a bit. It, it makes a big difference when, when you when you show that long track, um, and also people have a tendency when they think you know science fiction art or they think fantasy art, uh, and they just think of just those terms. You know, they're having some mixture of like bad bug-eyed monster art from the 50s, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, some of the side of someone's van uh, that's been painted <laughs> in the 70s or those Spencer's Gifts blacklight posters, yeah. um, you know, and, and the recognition that actually in the, the long-term history, those kinds of things are the outliers um, and not the typical, and I can go on at endless length um, about the span and how the work that was happening largely in the 30s through the 60s kind of deviates out from the actual longer term history of the field. Um, you know, but, but you know, people, they just have that sort of impression and they haven't really paid attention otherwise. You know, they're not looking, they're not, you know, they're, they're not out at the bookstore perusing copy. You know, and, and, and you can't really tell that much from, from book covers anyway. Um, you know, nobody would ever expect that you're going to judge the art historical quality of the Mona Lisa by looking at a 40-year-old postcard. <laughs> but effectively, that's what you do with anything that's illustration-based because prior to museum shows like these or, or shows like IX, uh, there was no way to see them. Either you bought them or you never saw the originals. Yeah, no, uh, you know, when I started uh, planning the exhibit, uh, I expected there would be uh, some uh, reticence, I guess, from other museums to loan because of the content. And, uh, you know, sure enough, there there was some. (laughs) But uh, I I was happily surprised uh, to find uh, two museums that are going to to take the exhibition after the Rockwell Museum. There's the the Hunter Museum uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then uh, the Flint Institute in uh, Flint, Michigan. And uh, it's funny that I've, I've worked with both museums before in my career, back when I worked at the Andy Warhol Museum. Um, so it seems like uh, they, uh, they kind of know what the public wants and uh, they know, uh, they know what, 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 will, what will bring the visitors in. It, it will absolutely bring the visitors in. And I think shows like this are incredibly important because it is so important to be able to show people if you want them to treat art seriously, you need to show it to them in a serious context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I can guarantee you, uh, if you take a Frank Frazetta Conan painting uh, to pick what is now a multi-million dollar piece of art, as an example, um, you know, and you put it up, you know, on a pegboard at a show and say the cover to Conan the Adventurer. Blah, 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 Versus you take the same painting, you know, and you put it in a museum and you put it on a museum wall and you show it as Conan the Adventurer, Frank Frazetta, blah, 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 blah. People, people respond to the work differently because they will give it much more serious consideration in one context than they will in the other. 
the work doesn't change. Um, it's just the, the framework that people put it in. Yeah, I found that to be the case with Rockwell. You know, everyone, everyone's seen his, his uh, paintings a million times, you know, on the Saturday Evening Post or uh, uh, in the news or calendars or whatever. But when people come to the museum, they're really blown away by the, uh, the physical artwork. And uh, every now and then you get a visitor who asks, you know, where do you, where do you keep the real artwork? You know, because they can't, they're, <laughs> they're convinced it's not the real painting on the wall because, uh, right. you know, it's, it's so amazing. So it's, uh, that's fun to see. There's always been, because I heard this, uh, you know, decades ago, you know, there, there was always among people who did consider it, which was not a lot of people, um, but there was always kind of this sort of uh, perception that illustrators, because they were working on deadlines, they were working on commission, they were working for reproduction and paperback size, that they cut corners um, and they were sloppy. And it's like, well, yeah, it looks fine at six inches by nine inches, but they're, they're just doing it quick to get it out and meet the deadline. Mm -hmm. And until you see the originals, you can't tell that that's not true. But then when you see the original, you know, 36 by 48 painting, mm -hmm. and it's magnificent, top to bottom, corner to corner, it's like, oh, well, well they weren't. They, 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 they were making a, a fabulous, <laughs> you know, a fabulous work of art. It just got reproduced this big. Yeah, and uh, so w when did the IX uh, conference start and uh, how did it get started? And I guess, how have you seen it grow over the years? Uh, well, the IX show started 2008 was the first IX show. Um, and it started, it, it's, it's a great story. Um, we did the very first thing we ever did exhibitionally speaking uh, was uh, we live in Altoona, Pennsylvania and Penn State Altoona is here. And so we did an exhibition of about 25 pieces from our collection at the art gallery at Penn State Altoona. And when we did that, uh, we invited all of the artists whose work we were showing to come to the opening. And we were showing a Boris Vallejo painting from our collection in the show. And so we invited Boris and Julie to come to the opening because they live in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And they were not able to make it to the opening. They had a, a prior commitment, but they invited us as a result to come out to the studio and visit. So we drove out to the studio and, and went to visit and conversation was going on. Uh, you know, kind of, I was talking with Boris and with Dave Palumbo, uh, one of Julie's sons, who's also an artist who was there. And Jeannie was talking with Julie and in the Jeannie Julie conversation, uh, the topic of shows came up and Julie talking about how, well, they didn't do shows anymore. You know, they didn't do comic cons or things because it was just sit there and sign autographs like a caged animal, yeah. you know, on display. And there was no good appreciation of the art or the artwork and that they, you know, and, uh, and Jeannie said, Oh, well, well, isn't there a show for the art, you know, for the artists. And Julie said, no, there isn't. There is no show that's, that's just about the art and the artists. And you should make one. If you did, we'd come. So after this meeting, we were actually leaving Boris and Julie's and going to the Frazetta Museum mm -hmm. uh, to visit for the weekend. So on the way, Jeannie and I talked about it. And it's like, well, you know, we, we could do a show. I mean, there should be a show. People should get a chance to see the work. And how hard could it be? <laughs> mm -hmm. Which... Uh, you know, if we'd asked that question a little more thoughtfully, we probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but in the end, we decided, okay, well, we, we could probably do this. 
And so when we got back, uh, we reached out to a lot of the artists that we knew um, and said, hey, if we, if we did this thing here, would you come? Because we knew if the artists came, the collectors would come. Uh, and so the artist said, yeah, that sounds really cool. We'd come. And so we held the first show and there were, I think, 42 artists wow. uh, exhibiting in the first show. And we had, I think, about 150 people total uh, at that event. Mm -hmm. um, but it was successful. You know, the artist sold $100,000 worth of art wow. in the event and they were happy and the collectors were happy and everybody mm -hmm. had a great time. And so we said, okay, well, hey, we'll, we'll do it again. Um, and then over the years, it's expanded and expanded and added new pieces and new parts. And now it's 220 artists or so. Um, and we've changed venues a couple of times to get bigger. But uh, that's where we are. So, you know, now we're, we're now looking at 2021, in which hopefully we will actually be able to have. Uh, as normal in October, the 2020 show was online only thanks to COVID. But uh, we're, we're thinking positively that we, we can at least have a vaccinated only show uh, come this October and kind of get things back in gear again. And uh, before you started uh, working on IX, uh, I guess, what was your day job? Uh, my day job up until late 2016, actually. Uh, so through the first 10 IXs or mm -hmm. eight I whatever, you know, uh, my day job was I was an instructional designer. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked as an instructional designer. I worked for a government contracting uh, company out of DC. Uh, I developed, I worked principally for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, developing training for long-term care surveyors. Um, previously, I did a lot of work with the EPA and other stuff, but that's what I did. Um, and that continued up until fall of 2016. And at that point, uh, you know, we, we, Jeannie and I both started doing uh, IX full time. Okay. I've got to name some artists here. So if you could, uh, tell me your thoughts on their art and why they stand out, what makes them so special? Mm -hmm. Uh, let's start with the big one, Frank Frazetta. Frank Frazetta. Frank Frazetta, we, we, we kind of identify Frazetta as being the point where the tradition of imaginative art sort of ends its branching and sort of rejoins um, in, in modern imaginative art. Um, you know, where the, the, the Brandywine tradition and the pre-Brandywine artist, the 19th century artist, um, that, that, whole, that whole set kind of fades over the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then Frazetta is the one that kind of brings that tradition back. Um, and then everyone who has followed Frazetta, you know, has done that. Um, so that's kind of what we consider his, he, he is, he is the, the first modern imaginative, uh, you know, artist to really go beyond illustration. Um, yeah, and, and yeah. still, you know, his his his, uh, his name is now a brand, and you know, uh, yes. his uh, granddaughter uh, Sarah runs Frazetta Girls, and they're you know going gangbusters. So, uh, what is it about Frazetta's work that, that strikes a chord with people? Frazetta's work, you know, it, it strikes a chord because it's it's powerful. 
Uh, I mean, for lack of any better word of describing, you know, Frank's work, it's powerful. It has an immediate visceral impact. Um, and it's, it's obviously they're, they're wonderfully well painted. Um, you know, particularly if you get the chance to see the originals, mm -hmm. uh, the reproduction does not do the originals a great favor um, over the years. Now, there subsequently, there have been very nice reproductions and Frazetta art books and stuff. But as far as the original publications, mm -hmm. uh, not doing the pieces any favors. And But I think it's really just a visceral energy that those pieces have. Uh, Frank was the master of motion. Um, of and, and it's interesting because if you look at his work, if you look at a lot of his paintings, and if you look at it carefully, and you look at it really critically, um, you know, a lot of his, you know, his anatomical are wrong. You know, they're, they're not actually correct, <laughs> sure. but they're wrong in exactly the right way to provide this, this, this dynamism um, in the work. And, and we think a lot of that comes from Frank being led back to uh, looking at the work of people like J. Allen St. John. Mm -hmm. um, who had been largely ignored, um, except by Frazetta's friend, Roy Crankle, uh, who was a great student of, of the work. And he introduced Frank to a lot of these artists, uh, people like uh, St. John, people like Lindsay, people like Norman Lindsay, uh, someone who's not even really an illustrator in the genre per se. But if you look at Norman Lindsay's nudes and you look at Frank's watercolor nudes, there's clearly a significant, um, and I think that's a lot of what, where Frank was really able to kind of appear on the scene with this, oh my God, explosion. Because the artist for, for decades prior to that had not been paying any attention to the previous, the, the older works, the older traditions. They were kind of going about their own things and then, mm -hmm. You know, particularly you get into the 50s and into the 60s and, you know, artists, they're pulling in, you know, they're pulling in influences from contemporary art. You get a lot of, you know, a lot of postmodernist, a lot of pastiche covers and a lot of these little collage sort of things and going on. Because And then Frank is suddenly, it's like, no, suddenly it's 1912 um, when you look at Frank's work and people hadn't seen that for a while. Uh, and how about Brian Froud? Brian Froud um, really kind of uh, caught the attention, I think, of everybody with, with sort of a whole new fairies. I mean, not that people weren't painting fairies, um, but he, again, Froud is a direct dribble out of Arthur Rackham and, and Duloc um, and a number of, of the Golden Age illustrators where no one had been doing much like that for an extended period of time. And all of a sudden there's Brian Froud uh, with these amazing watercolors. Okay. And Brian also uh, was able to increase his influence because at the same time, he also was doing film concept work uh, for things like Labyrinth, mm -hmm. uh, which also had a really significant cultural effect or cultural impact. And so he, again, had exactly the right stuff in exactly the right time. And 
was going back to an older tradition. And you mentioned uh, Boris Vallejo, and uh, of course, uh, you know, we can't forget his uh, wife, uh, who was equally talented, uh, Julie Bell. Yes. Um, Boris and Julie are, are really interesting uh, study. You know, Boris, of course, is kind of one of the grandmasters. Uh, you know, Boris's career is really starting up in the early 70s. Um, you know, he's post Frazetta, um, you know, but he's taking a different approach than, than Frazetta. I mean, obviously, Frazetta is much more painterly. Uh, Boris is much more highly rendered. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's but it becomes that kind of ubiquitous sort of thing because his work, again, has a lot of power to it and a lot of impact to it, albeit in a different way than Frank's. Um, and Julie has has really been kind of the, I mean, sort of the 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 avatar um, of the illustration to imaginative realism. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Julie started out as an illustrator, she illustrated, she did covers. Um, her work was similar to Boris's. Um, but but different, different palette, different. She very much liked shiny things, metals, and much more than Boris. Um, but then Julie started doing gallery work um, and, and taking her, her imagery into another kind of place and has been extremely successful at doing that. Mm-hmm. And you know, lots of other artists are, are are doing the same thing, but Julie is kind of one of the ones that would come to mind is who's been the most successful at making that transition from illustrator to you know galleries in Manhattan. Now, Julie's such a sweetheart. I mean, uh, I had been in touch with her uh, for a while uh, before um, I attended the IX Arts uh, show in uh, 2019. And I went up to her at the at the conference, and I uh, introduced myself in person, and and she gave me a hug. And uh, you know, she was so, uh, so sweet and so welcoming. And throughout the whole uh, exhibit and the delay because of the pandemic and everything, she's uh, been really helpful in uh, in organizing uh, her art, Boris's art, also uh, you know her children, uh, Anthony and David. Uh, they're, they're also in the exhibit, so uh, she's she's been uh, there. there I do not think that a sweeter person than Julie Bell actually exists on the planet. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of sweet people, uh, how about Ruth Sanderson? Ruth Sanderson uh, is, is, is again, uh, you know, a part of that older tradition, uh, but coming from kind of a different angle from a, a Frazetta or a Boris uh, or a Froud, uh, where she is coming from the, the children's books. I mean, that's, you know, that's Ruth's, you know, she's a children's book illustrator. Um, and so she is going back to that, you know, the, the great illustrated classics of the teens and 20s yeah. um, is kind of her basis in background. And so you end up with a, a very different feel of art um, than you get from, you know, the other folks because it's, it's, it's for children but it has kind of a fairy tale magic kind of feel to it. It's in some ways it's less realistic uh, in some ways as 
I mean, not that like Frazetta's paintings are particularly realistic in terms of subject matter, uh, you know, but in some way it's, it's, so they're a little more magical um, and a little more, more fairy tale-ish, um, but same kind of thing, um, you know, looking at that earlier tradition and, and taking that forward, as opposed to what you saw from a lot of children's books, say in the sixties. Uh, how about Scott Gustafson? Scott Gustafson, uh, similar to Ruth uh, in a sense of coming from a place of children's, a uh, place of fairy tales, mm-hmm. um, you know, different approach. Um, you know, Scott's work is, is much more traditional realist painting um, and not as much children's realist painting, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, but amazing, wonderful, you know, amazing and wonderful work um, and has, you know, been responsible for introducing an awful lot of people to kind of the modern fairy tales. Uh, and Donato Giancola. <laughs> Donato is, is a force. <laughs> uh, you know, he, 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 he appeared in the, in the mid nineties um, and, and kind of made his bones with uh science fiction um, with, with metals and, and hard materials and, and just lots of shiny things um, is kind of what first, you know, because he did that better than anybody else was doing that. Um, and then from there, of course, he expanded, um, you know, he has become a little more painterly uh, than he was earlier in his career, although he's still pretty rendered, but he's, he's more painterly than he was. And, you know, now Donato paints everything and is known for everything. And, you know, I mean, I guess at this point, if you want to say what's a Donato, it's, you know, uh, astronauts, um, kind of a big, a big theme and Lord of the Rings sure. is a major theme for Donato. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but again, Donato super heavily influenced um, by, you know, 19th century and earlier painters. Yeah, I think generations from now, people are going to look back, and Donato's going to be like, uh, you know, a Frazetta or Vallejo to a lot of a lot of artists. Yeah, I think so. Uh, there, there will be an awful lot of, uh, um, and and he's and he he's he's been that way. He, he's he's always been very involved uh, with students um, and with sharing information and sharing. That's one of the one of the really nice things about the the imaginative artists, kind of as a group. Um, there's compared to at least what we have experienced and what we have been told about compared to some other areas, uh, including just broad contemporary realism. Um, the, a lot of those areas are much more cutthroat than imaginative art as a genre has been more supportive. The artists in it tend to be more supportive of each other and younger artists. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for now, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome, and thank you. It was a privilege and a pleasure to be here. Uh, For more information, check out Patrick's website at ix-online.com, and you can check him out on Facebook under IXArts. Also, please uh, visit our own websites, nrm.org, illustrationhistory.org, and visit the Rockwell Center for American Visual Studies at rockwellcenter.org. As always, don't forget to subscribe to be notified for the latest content. This has been a production of the Norman Rockwell Museum. 
watch the video of this podcast or to see the images referenced in this episode, please visit nrm.org podcast. New episodes from the Illustrator Studio are released every Monday. For questions or comments, please email us at podcast at nrm.org. <laughs>